we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Well, today we're very excited to share with you our interview with Adolfo Rosati from Località del Piano in Central Italy. Um, I really hope our listeners, uh, Italian listeners, can forgive my pronunciation. Uh, what I find great about this episode are the many insights he gives us on finding a balance between the diversity that comes with agroforestry on one hand, and on the other, the necessity to maintain a certain economy of scale in your productions to avoid overstretching yourself. Through his years of experience, he's able to give us tangible examples and advice on different strategies to navigate bureaucratic constraints, but also on the best approach to start a farm. Personally, I came out very inspired and with a lot of things to think about. I really enjoyed his make sense farming approach where trees, animals and other crops are elegantly combined to optimize for efficiency, all whilst providing diversity to his local clients. Adolfo shows us how to take advantage of the symbiotic relationships between farm elements, also explaining to us how technical and challenging this can be. I love it how with small farms, you really see creativity of integrating trees on farms, which may be more difficult to express to such a large extent on larger operations. But regardless of this, in my opinion, it remains a real source of inspiration for whatever the scale, with, with elements that can be cherry-picked to fit different contexts. So without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast, Adolfo. Thank you. Thanks for, um, for joining us. Thank you for giving uh, us uh, your time in this busy period. And um, maybe as a, as a beginning, you could start by introducing uh, yourself as well as um, your farm and, and the project. Sure. My name is Adolfo Rosati. I live in Italy. And um, I dreamed of being a farmer as a kid, and uh, I didn't have a farm, so I had to find another job. I thought I might as well be a scientist and study plants so that when I would have my farm, I would have some knowledge. And so I did. I studied agriculture in high school and university, and then I became a researcher, and I studied agriculture. And in one of my trips to the United States, I met uh, my wife, who was um, also interested in uh, animals, and uh, she would be, uh, as a kid, she would draw far, uh, stables to optimize the space for keeping her cows and pigs. And so we decided to have a farm together. And because by then I had uh, purchased some land in Italy, we decided to have a farm in Italy. And so now I still work in research, but when I go home, I help my wife who's a full-time farmer. And this is how we got to, to have a farm in Umbria in the middle of Italy. And how did you then um, get to know agroforestry or, or did you get in a specific interest in agroforestry? Well, um, as a um, scientist and a farmer to be, I was uh, I had land in a marginal area in the mountains, and everything I studied, like growing corn and growing wheat, it just wouldn't work in my land. There was no way I could make any money or a living uh, growing corn in, on a place with uh, incredible slopes and very unfertile soils. 
clearly I had to find uh, some niche crops with higher value that could uh, uh, be interesting in a farm that doesn't have the fertility necessary for the conventional crops. And also, um, I planted olives in a field and I realized it would take 20 years for them to fill the space. And I thought, this is uh, some, uh, not, not uh, practical, not good. I need to use the space with something in the middle, at least during the time the olives are growing. So I started planting um, small fruits like currants and blackberries. Uh, I started planting the wild blackberries because they were the most suited to the area. They grew without any help from outside. And then I thought about the wild asparagus, which grows spontaneously in my area, but it's uh, sold on the market and no one grew it, no one cultivated it. So I decided to plant asparagus under the trees um, because there was plenty of light available and to combine things to get higher production out of the same land, but in a sustainable way. And so I started practicing this, which later on, as I kept reading and studying, I discovered some other people call permaculture, some other people call agroforestry. And so I realized what I was doing was agroforestry. I just didn't have the same name for it. And when I discovered this, I became interested in, in um, acting in agroforestry, both as a farmer and as a scientist. And um, so I went to the second World Agroforestry Conference in Kenya, and uh, I met people. We decided to um, found uh, a European agroforestry um, organization, which became EURAF, the European Agroforestry uh, Federation, of which I am one of the founders. And so basically since then, um, I had a name for what I was doing and I had an opportunity to learn more about it and how to do it and how to do it better and why it made sense. And since then I've been um, working on it both, both as a scientist and, and as a farmer. And so I would say that most of what we do in our farm nowadays could probably be qualified under the name of agroforestry. I love the fact that you kind of discovered agroforestry uh, just out of practical um you know, observation and, and just um, doing things in a logical manner. And it's, it's pretty cool that it, it happened in that order, actually. I must admit that I am cautious with the use of names because I feel like, after all, it's all agriculture. And oftentimes um, there might not be need for a name or for a brand. And I often see um, people practicing uh, certain kinds of, of farming be more interesting in adhering to the brand name or, or to the specific of that uh, classification. Whereas um, I think from a farmer's perspective, we just want to know how to farm better in a more sustainable way, both economically and environmentally. And uh, we might not necessarily care what other people call this. And so I'm, I'm, I'm cautious to, to be um, to feel strongly about the name, rather I'm interested in whatever uh, any technique can offer to a farmer and call it agroforestry or whatever doesn't really matter as much. Though um, I like the agroforestry community because of the many different brand names that I heard, this seems to be uh, one of the most um, scientifically based um, practice or environment. And so I like to stick to facts and uh, good ideas. And, and so agroforestry seems to be uh, a good environment for my way of thinking. Uh, but I'm 
happy to um, call it any other thing or not care about the name and just follow the good practice for the good farm. I think we can relate to that because with Dimitri, we've, we've often had the same conversation about uh, regenerative agriculture, for example, and these different terminologies. But maybe we'll, we'll have some time to get back to this because it's, it's a really interesting topic. But before we do that, maybe can you give us a bit of an overview of the farm then uh, in terms of you know, your local context, uh, what are your main products and where you sell them? Yes, of course. The farm is, um, you might say, in the mountains. The elevation is not very high, but it feels like you're in the mountains because the valley is really narrow and is, is just uh, surrounded by mountains. So the fields are really steep. Um, our place is called Il Piano, and you might wonder where the piano means the flat area is. Uh, and that's because it's a small piece, like, you know, uh, 0.1 hectares in front of our house, which is flat. And it's such an exception that it gives the name to the place. And so our fields are sloped. And this also means that the fertility is low because you're in the mountains. The, the soil is not, uh, um, it, it does not come from different sources and it's not necessarily very deep most of the time. Um, so about nowadays we have a little over 30 hectares and uh, a little bit more than half of this is uh, forests and uh, the other half it was abandoned field that were slowly uh, brought back to cultivation and uh, and we on on the main one of these we planted a collection of fruit trees because one of our dreams was to save ancient varieties and uh, collect any other varieties to gather data about what grows well in our area. Our idea is that um, if you don't want to use a lot of external inputs and you want to have a more sustainable farming, you need to adapt to what grows in your area. And uh, this is a concept that should translate also in the relationship with consumers. Consumers should consume what is available on that farm and not uh, buy in a, what I call a capricious manner, whatever suits your fancy just because it can be available. Like don't eat the strawberries one month before it's time because that entails greenhouses, eat them when they're ready naturally. So our goal was to test as many things as possible so that we would leave a heritage of knowledge 10 years, 20 years later to whomever wants to use it on what grows there without many external inputs. So we collected varieties and varieties of fruit trees. We have 450 varieties of apples and um, pears and peaches and 80 varieties of figs and persimmons and cherries and black and white currants and um, blackberries and uh, mulberries and unusual things. And so um, part of the land is this uh, mixed orchard. Uh, another part, uh, small part, is a forest garden where we collected edible but unusual species. And uh, later I can say more about what I feel about forest gardens if you're interested. And then part of the land is just fields where animals graze. And then animals also graze in the forest, which is indeed the majority of the land. And uh, we also thin the forest uh, to provide forage for the animals and wood for the house so that we can keep warm in winter. Um, so we have fruits. Uh, we have two cows. Uh, from the cows, we make uh, many varieties of cheese. My wife, Darcy, has um, 
taking a real passion on making cheese and she makes anything from blue cheese, gorgonzola, to scamorza, to mozzarella, to ricotta, to cacciotta, and, and so on, feta, and so on. And so we have a large variety of uh, cheeses, yogurt, uh, and milk. Of course, two cows don't produce much, but that's the scale that we like. It's like a, a um, production for a few families. So that would be our family, and that's our first income. We basically don't buy food because we have so many products that we only buy salt and a uh, few other minor things, everything else basically we eat what we produce and because you use it at the price of a final consumer uh, that's a non-negligible source of income most people spend close to a thousand euros per month buying food in a family of four like ours and we basically spend maybe five percent of that and so that is a source of income and then the extra production goes uh, to friends and consumer and uh, and and per customers that um, buy through a WhatsApp group. So we send a WhatsApp message with what is available, and once a week, when I go to work in town, I bring the produce and people come and get it. Um, so we have uh, ten sheep that clean the orchard. Uh, we don't usually milk them and make cheese because that's too much work but occasionally we might. In other ways, we sell lambs. Uh, and so we have uh, nice vegetable gardens with a, a lot of different variety of things. My wife being American means that we often have seeds and varieties of vegetables that are not common here, so that it's a nice little niche market where people have not seen a crooked neck yellow zucchini or a uh, UFO-shaped zucchini, and this often makes for good sales. I must say these new technologies uh, really help the farmers. You can send a picture of a nice, unusual fruit and um, everybody wants to buy it because you see a nice image. So image and telephones and smartphones are really handy and useful for marketing and advertising. And then we have, um, we host groups in the farms. So we have activities, we offer activities. People can come to learn about wild edible weeds. Um, so I am a, a bit specialized in this sector. I wrote a couple of books and I take people around the farm showing what is edible, how you recognize it and how you cook it and what it is good for and traditions and anecdotes about those species. And then we end up tasting and eating uh, things made out of these uh, greens. Um, and that's, that's one activity that we do with groups. Uh, others could be go milk the cow, go to the laboratory, make cheese, and then turn on the wood burning oven and make pizza and use the cheese on top of your pizza. So you go from, from the barn to the table in the same morning and people can experience the whole process. Um, we might pick grapes and make juice. And so we sell activities, we sell fruits and vegetables and, and cheeses. And we have an agriturismo with um, four bedrooms where people can also stay. And they have two large kitchens where they can buy the produce and cook it by themselves. So this is more or less the package of the activities. Just to get a sense of the volume of what you produce, as a big, big estimation, how many people do you think you, you sell produce to outside of your family? 
I think we have a list of 50 families in our WhatsApp group. That does not mean that we produce that much mm -hmm. because sometimes they are, don't buy anything, sometimes they're on holiday, um, so um, people come and go in waves. So every week we might have perhaps 12, 15 families that buy at least something, not necessarily a lot. So that is more or less the scale. You know, when, when we were discussing before the, the podcast, you're talking about different uh, research um, or experiments, agroforestry experiments that you were doing on your farm. And um, you mentioned a few now about, for example, you talked about uh, tree fodder from the forest and you talked about animals grazing, uh, sheep grazing in your orchard. Could you maybe elaborate a bit more to explain us what agroforest systems um, are you implementing on the farm? Yeah, very happily. So um, we may start with asparagus and olives, which has been the oldest experiment I have conducted in, in our farm before even it was a farm, before even I met my wife. In 91, I planted my first olive field. And as I said, I saw a lot of space and olives would take years to fill it out. So I planted things underneath them. And one of these things was this wild asparagus. Um, but um, nobody mm, sold the plants and I tried to plant the seeds and the seed did not germinate. So I started uh, studying seed germination and it took me a few years to uh, put together a, a, a system to make the seeds grow. They're just uh, dormant. They take a year and a half to grow basically. But once I discovered this, I was able to produce plants. And so I produced my own plants and planted them under the olive. And I planted them along the line um, so that I could still drive the tractor in between and harvest and olives and so on. And then um, because it was such a neat thing and the market price of the wild asparagus is really high, around 25 euros per kilo, um, other people saw these things. And I also, as a scientist, wrote some article about how to grow these things. And, and people started asking for plants. And so nobody was producing them. So as a farm, we decided to produce them. And so we also sell wild asparagus plants and have a little nursery. And uh, um, to clean the asparagus, um, I use the tractor and, and do flail mowing um, to grind up the, the, the weeds. But I realized that sheep could do the same job um, for free and while producing something else. Uh, so as soon as we could, we started experimenting with animals. And uh, I had a chance to work in a project um, using chickens instead. And so um, I, I, together with the University of Perugia, worked on a project um, with another farmer to grow wild asparagus under olives and use chickens to weed both. Because once you plant the asparagus in an olive orchard, um, you don't have just an olive orchard, you have an asparagus. And asparagus is a vegetable crop, it's a much more intensive system. So weeding an asparagus olive orchard is much more work than weeding just an olive orchard because you need to be careful of the asparagus as you drive your machinery and it's more expensive. Of course, you get two crops and that justifies the expense. But if you can spend nothing, so much better. And chickens are small they scratch and if they don't eat the grass they destroy by scratching and um, they fertilize at the same time so we basically um, put together the system where if you grow a thousand chicken per hectare 
meat chickens that have a cycle of about 90 to 100 days, and you do this in spring and fall when the grasses grow, uh, you can keep your asparagus orchard system weed-free and fertilized and no cost, and, and of course you have the additional production of chickens. Of course the chickens need to be fed almost as much as you would without grazing them because chickens will eat grass but that's not how they grow they need they need their feed anyway so the benefit is not that you're saving chicken feed but the benefit is that um, you're weeding and fertilizing for free and this has resulted in a few paper including on the journal cleaner production where we show that it's way more sustainable to keep chickens outdoor grazing in an existing orchard because their grazing um, saves you fertilizing and um, weeding of the orchard. Um, but sheep do a great job too. Of course, sheep will eat olives, and um, uh, so you need to prune your olives a little bit higher so that they will not damage the bulk of the canopy. Uh, but the other great thing is that, unlike chickens, sheep do eat um, grass as their main feed. So compared to keeping sheep in a stable, grazing an olive orchard actually saves you most of the food. And the other thing is that sheep do eat olives, but if the olives are tall, they don't do much damage, but they eat the suckers, which is uh, free added labor. And uh, when you prune the olives, the olive pruning become sheep food. So basically an olive orchard has three sources of feed for ruminants, grass growing naturally, because nowadays in most all over the world, olive orchards are, are kept with green mulching because of all the benefits of green mulching. And therefore you need to mow this grass and there's no point of spending gasoline and money to do it if animals can do it for you and you get a second production. So that's, that's what we do. We graze the olive orchard and the fields. And um, so olives produce feed by producing the grass that grows below, produce feed by producing pruning materials which you can use to feed the animals. And uh, when you make olive oil, you're left with olive cake as a residue, and you can take the pits off the cake, and what's left is, a, is another product that it can be mixed with other feeds and, and it's very useful for feeding animals. So you got these three sources that are commonly wasted. Now, if you want to produce more in a more sustainable way with fewer resources, we can't keep wasting these resources. So olive pruning, olive grass, and olive cake should be all used as a feed before they go back to the land as a fertilizer. And, and this makes us produce more on the same land in a sustainable way, while also saving the cost of fertilizing and mowing. So this is a little bit um, of what we do in the farm. Let me stop you there a bit, uh, Adolfo, because you've just unwrapped some really interesting things there. When you talked about the chicken inside the orchard, and the weeding that they provide for the orchard and for the asparagus. The chickens, they don't go for the asparagus, even when it's young, or do you have to integrate them after, after the asparagus already got established? Yes, good points. Thanks for, for um, 
giving me a chance to clarify, um, you normally need to fence the field because you want to keep the chickens in and you don't want to stand there to look after them. So you, you need to fence the field and the fencing needs to go underground by maybe 30 centimeters to prevent foxes and other animals to dig under and go in or you need some other system like a, a fencing that bends 90 degree and runs over the ground for maybe 30 centimeters so that when animals go dig they find a metallic fence and they can't dig so that's the first thing um for the asparagus yes when you establish the plant the first year or two the chickens could potentially approve them but um, asparagus are long-lived plants once you plant them you have them for 50 years so after the first couple of years the plants are adults and well established and they are prickly the wild asparagus is uh, i'm talking about asparagus acutifolius and it's a prickly plant so the chickens don't go too close because it's a rigid and prickly plant and so they they can't scratch too close to the to the root because the the canopy of the plant keeps them away and um uh, of course you keep the chickens out during the time where the new spears emerge the spears are the new asparagus coming up so when the new shoots emerge you don't keep the chickens there though i have noticed they do not eat them but for sanitary reason it's probably better that there's no chickens uh, for a month before you pick the spears and so you put the chickens after and after means in my climate about beginning of may when the harvesting stops then you put the chickens in the asparagus by then are opened they turn into a prickly vegetation the plant is safe and the chickens clean out all the weeds uh, you do your um, three-month period and then stop because it's summer and the weeds don't grow anyway and then you start the second period of chickens in uh, fall when rains come again and the grass starts growing again so that you harvest the chickens before Christmas before it's too cold for them to be outside anyway and you do these two cycles uh, in combination with the two moments where the grass grows but the asparagus are already harvested it's really very interesting. And, and going back to what you were saying before with the sheep, it's the same question would apply there. Do the When you integrate the sheep in the olive orchard, is it also the same olive orchard that has the asparagus in between? Do the sheep, um, are the sheep also the, um, um, interested in the asparagus? Uh, same story. The um, sheep don't browse on the prickly asparagus, but you definitely don't want to put goats there, nor donkeys, nor horses, um, Horses might be okay, but they're heavy animals and they compact the soil a lot. And so small animals are much better. Um, but sheep will not eat the asparagus. And um, so you, you can graze them. And, and again, this is an important concept. Animals, as a, as a tool to weed and fertilize, should be used like any tools with management and intelligence. Um, some people think that you fence uh, uh, an orchard, you throw in a couple of sheep and you're done. Of course, that doesn't work that way. What, what that will result is in overgrazing, compacted soil, and the animals out of boredom will start damaging asparagus and olives because there's not enough grass and not enough to do. Grazing must be done like you would uh, on a flail mower. You go through the field when the grass is tall and then you, you do your mowing and then you're out of there until 
it's needed again. So the animals must be managed the same way. They need to have intensive short rotational grazing where they go in, they do their job, and they're out until needed again. So this is fundamental. You, they need to be managed for the system to be successful. If you just throw a few animals in a fence and leave them all the time, that's a disaster. In a, in a typical year, the sheep would be how long in the olive grove? Well, um, in rotation, which means you take the sheep in an area and then move them to the next area and then to the next area. But the sheep could be there. In, an, in the case of olive orchard, um, the sheep could be there basically, uh, could be rotated through the system basically any time during the year except this, those two months, March and April, where you would pick the, aspar the asparagus. The rest of the time, they can be there. Of course, in the summer, there's not much for them to eat, unless you're pruning um, water sprouts from the trees, in which case you can bring the sheep in to eat the water sprouts that you're throwing to the ground. And the uh, same thing in winter, once you graze through the fall, not much is growing during the winter, unless you're pruning the olives, in which case, again, you can bring the chickens in, the, the sheep, or not the chickens, they don't eat olive prunings, the sheep in, to eat uh, most of the prunings. Consider that olive prunings are about 50% leaves, and or leaves plus tender twigs, and 50% wood. So when you prune, about 50% of the biomass you remove from the tree is something that the sheep can actually eat and this means that you're feeding the sheep but if you end up grounding the rest of the wood as a fertilizer to leave in place you have to ground half as much uh, the mass as you would so you're still saving uh, fuel and work and so the sheep could be there uh, most of the year if there is something to eat uh, most likely there is more grass in the spring and in the fall the chickens um, probably shouldn't be there in, in winter because at least in our climate it would be too cold unless they had a good housing for cold days and there's not much reason to be there in the summer because you don't need them and so they would soon overgraze the area so with the chickens i would advise two cycles per year in spring and fall whereas with the sheep anytime there is grass or pruning material they can always go but always with the idea that you keep them until for, for as long as there is something for them to eat. And as soon as there isn't, you move them out. Otherwise, they might start doing damage and they compact the soil unnecessarily and they're getting nothing out of it anyway. Talking about the compaction of the soil, um, one of the issues with sheep that, we've, that we often hear about or with animals is when you're on a slope like you are, you know, they create erosion. They push the soil down. They open up the soil. Is this something that um, that you've seen happen on your on your slope uh, on your slopey fields with the with the sheep, or even even more so with the cows due to their weight? Yes, um, it, this this is uh, the main problem if you don't manage them well. Um, even if you manage them well, you might see that they have preferential ways of going every day and on those paths you might get a little bit of that a little bit of potential erosion because they'll walk out of the night place always in the same spot but if you move them frequently this is not a big problem because they might they might not stay in a given place more than a few days and in a few days that's 
that's not gonna be a problem. If they stay there a month and it rains, then on their path you start seeing water erosion. But but if you do intense and frequent uh, grazing, they are not there enough to to do the damage. the The important point is that when you when you move them, uh, you move them so that there is no area in common with the previous area, and then the the problem is not uh, is, is is negligible. But I was thinking. Once you diversify that much and all of a sudden uh, you go from olive to having olive plus asparagus and then adding in chicken and maybe sheep, is that something that you were able to um, sell easily? And as, as well, I'm thinking in, this, in terms of chicken to have the local infrastructure and the abattoir. Yes, absolutely. This, this, was, uh, this is the downside of all the excitement we've talked about so far which I was certainly going to get to because it's the most important limiting factor. Um, for chickens in the project that I mentioned, we try to address this and uh, University of Perugia is um, trying to study a system of uh, um, an abattoir on wheels that has all their certification and then the farmer doesn't own it, it just um, pays for the service. So you pay, it comes to your place and you have a legal framework to butcher your animals and then um, this this should help solve the problem because when the when you have a small number of animals it's not worth your while to bring them to an, an official abattoir that might be 300 miles away from you and it, it wouldn't it wouldn't make economic sense and this uh, problem of scale I find applies to most things um, fruits and vegetables you can sell without much paperwork as a farm so it's not too difficult even if you are on a, a very small scale farmer selling fresh fruits and vegetables you can sell the stuff and uh, there's not many requirements so that that's relatively straightforward but as soon as you turn your fruit into a jam um, you need a laboratory and a laboratory costs a lot of money and it's not justifiable on a small scale True, you can bring your fruit to an existing laboratory and have it do the work for you and have your jam with a, a perfectly legal label and everything else. It can have your name and it will say uh, processed by this laboratory for your farm. And so that works. Uh, for, for chickens, that's the most difficult thing. Um, it's true that in our uh, my region, because Italy has certain rules that are by region and not by state, by country, and so in my region you can have up to 250 between chickens and rabbits, which you can um, um, process in the farm without uh, needing an abattoir. And, and you can sell it to customers. So these are very small numbers. 250 chickens could clean perhaps um, a, a small area, uh, which could be the area where you're going to grow your vegetable garden next year in rotation. You know, when you plow that little bit of land, you put the chickens in to clean all the pests and insects, or it can be a small vineyard or a small uh, orchard or olive orchard. But as I said before, to really clean uh, one hectare of an olive orchard or any other orchard, you probably need at least a thousand animals in a year. 
and that becomes a scale where you need uh, official abattoirs and all of that. And so you have to bring the animals to a place and find an arrangement. The farmer we worked with found a different solution. He um, uh, keeps the animals on contract for other, for a larger company that sells organic free-range animals. So they bring the animals to him. He keeps them for a month in the olive orchard, and then they come and get the animals. He gets what he gets, which probably is not much, but um, he doesn't have to deal with all the paperwork. They just bring the animals, and then a month later, come and get them. So that's another solution. But yes, in general, the problem of diversifying your farm is that you multiply the paperwork and the troubles of uh, processing uh, and um, selling many different things. And with the current legal framework, this is a huge burden because this framework is designed for the current system, which is usually made of large industries. And so if you have a thousand chickens for one hectare, or you have 10 million chickens, the requirements are the same. So what we need to um, make clear is that if Europe and the world wants a small scale, more sustainable, localized uh, agriculture, it also needs to adjust the rules to this scale. You can't ask the same of a farmer with a thousand chicken and one with a hundred thousand or, or, or 10 millions. You need a scale that is the burden, the, uh, the bureaucratical and infrastructural burden must be proportional to the scale because the risks are also different. Uh, with a few chickens, the risk of health risk of food are not the same as with a huge farm. So there's no need for the same um, strict rules um, and so to help farmers, we really need to provide this kind of simplification of rules and assistance in uh, how to comply with the requirements. Like writing a label for a jam is really difficult. In fact, you can't call it jam because jam or marmellata in Italiano only applies to citrus products. So the fruit products Everybody calls it marmellata, jam, but legally it's a compote. Um, so, so you know, you, you need assistance to do all these things and, and on a small scale, you can't pay that assistance. So I would really vote for stopping giving farmers subsidies to keep doing what they have been doing for hundred years and it doesn't stay on the market and rather help them when they have ideas providing the infrastructure and, and the assistance, the, the, um, the bureaucratical or, or policy assistance for them to overcome all the burdens. So as I said, fruits and vegetables are the easiest, but when it comes to yogurt and cheese and stuff, so we were able, as an agriturismo, and only because we have an agriturismo, not because we are a farm, but because we have an agriturismo and we can serve our food to the guests, then we were able to process up to 50 kilograms per week of, say, cheese or jams. Uh, and this was great because 50 kilograms a, a week, it's a good scale and it's enough for a small farm to, to work. But then they changed the rule. And now, apparently, according to the new rule, we can process something like 
half a kilo per week instead of 50 kilograms. Half a kilo is like teasing a farmer. It, 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 it would be more honest to say, don't do it, because telling me I can process half a kilo of fruit or milk every week, it's just ridiculous. So this is a way of killing the farmer, pretending that, that you give them a chance. Well, indeed, you don't give them a chance. Um, and so now it's not really clear whether we can sell the cheese to our customers, but only if they eat it on the farm, but if they take it home, the same cheese becomes illegal. So um, these are huge problems. And if we ever stop farming, it's not because our system is not technically or environmentally sustainable, but because the bureaucracy is killing us. On this topic of infrastructure, I mean, one thing that's happening here in France, uh, and I'm sure it exists in, um, in Italy as well, is uh, collective transformation. Um, I don't know how you say it in English, atelier uh, workshops or, you know, um, uh, labs. And um, I've seen this recently being on a farm where uh, they, they have a kind of like a cooperative, but just that they collectively own uh, these machines. And it means that they're able to diversify very quickly with a little risk because, you know, you're not investing in huge amounts of, of uh, machinery, but you're actually, you know, testing out different things. And then if your product works, you upscale it. And, and that's absolutely necessary because indeed, we can talk as much as we want about ecological diversity, but the, the basis of that is having the, the proper infrastructure. Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I, I was in the Netherlands for the, in 2018 for the uh, fourth um, European agroforestry conference. And um, I, I visited some farms and, and that's what some farms were doing. Like they were experimenting very interesting things. Like in one case, um, some city folks um, purchase a land and pay somebody to be a farmer for them. So they just pay the farmer and he tries to produce what they ask. And there might be some beef and some vegetables and some fruits. And then basically they own the place and uh, the farmers arranges for them to pick up the produce. I don't know if this would work everywhere, but it's a great experiment. And other experiments could be um, in Italy, you have the possibility of um, creating what is called a cultural uh, club. So basically, you belong to the club, so I'm not giving you my milk, but I'm milking your cow because it belongs to the club. And so you can eat your very own milk at your own, very own risk because it's yours just like anybody can have a cow and drink the milk without having a laboratory it's not illegal because you're the owner and you're not selling it so if you if you can study this kind of framework to overcome some of the limitations and we've been thinking about this um, for the time being we haven't acted on it but this this is a possible solution basically find a legal framework for which the buyers are not buyers they're paying the cost of growing their own food and you're just working for them and and, and then it's their cow and it's their pig and it's their jam and and they can come and do it if they want to or you make it for them, but it's their jam. So yes, the, these um, ideas could really help a farmer overcome some of these limitations. But it would be nice if uh, the policy would change so that you don't have to go crazy about finding a solution and it would be just easier 
to do things on a small scale with burdens that are proportional to your scale and not to an industrial scale. Adolfo, this is a very interesting topic on infrastructure. And just taking it a a step back, do you think that diversifying the way you are diversifying at the moment, uh, notably with with the chickens in the orchard and the sheep and the asparagus, what's the impact of that economically speaking? Does that improve the economic position of the farm or is it something that you do for ecological reasons yeah yeah thanks thanks that's a great point because we find that diversification is really um, a coin with two faces on one hand um, it's uh, great because you always have something new and when something fails there is always something else that didn't so having 450 varieties of apple means that from June to April next year, you always have something. On the other hand, it also means that when you taste an apple and it's good, you might not have enough to sell and the next apple tastes differently. And you never know when they're ready, when to harvest, which ones are worth selling. And uh, so, so it takes a huge amount of experience and a long time to gain this experience in order for you to do the best of what you have when you have so many different products. But on the other hand, um, sending a picture on WhatsApp of an apple that people have never seen before, it's a very important, attractive advertising and people want to try them. Uh, so, and, and again, you know, five out of 10 varieties fail one year, but there's always one that does something. And uh, when you when you don't spray them, hardly prune them, keep the weeds with animal, don't spend much money on them, it's an extensive system. It doesn't matter that you grow 10 apples and sell um, fruits for an equivalent of one tree, the rest falls on the ground and the animals eat it, and that's fine because it, that, that's the scale. You, you are not spending uh, the way you normally would spend on the tree. You're spending an amount of money and care that's equivalent to one tree, and you get the crop of one tree, but it's a more extensive system, and you can afford to do it that way. The rest is grazing anyway. And so um, with experience, uh, the variety and the diversification turns out to be a good thing to always have something. It makes for a resilient system where every week there is something to sell. It's amazing how basically all year we always have something that's in season. And uh, people come to us because we promise something fresh that's been picked few hours before and it's unusual and it's in season and it's not always easy to find that or to trust that what you buy is that. And so this is a strong point, um, but the diversification also means that there's a lot of apples that you don't sell because you did not pick them at the right time or they don't have the flavor that people like. Um, a huge problem is that uh, most customers, despite potentially being interested or declaring themselves as interested in sustainable issues uh, and local and whatever, chemical free or whatever, uh, in reality, they're used to eat in a certain way, which is an industrialized way. And when you when they're faced with a product that doesn't look and doesn't taste like anything they know, they might be curious once, but they're not gonna buy regularly. 
Um, so we have Cornelian cherries. We even have improved varieties of Cornelian cherries. People might be interested in knowing about them once, but they're not going to be regular consumers of these things. You know, they're used to an apple and a pear, and a, an unusual fruit is not something they're likely to to pay for more than once or twice. Um, so um, it's it's hard to it's hard to sell a lot of diversity to a market that's not used to that diversity. It would be important to include the consumers in a closer contact with the farmer, um, investing in more education of the consumers where you send more information or you invite them to participate in activities and, and make them learn. But taste is something that people develop as children and once they're adults, um, they're not as open-minded about new new products. So very few people accept that an apple with no chemicals has a little grub inside, and then you open it up with a knife and discard the grub, but then you are eating an apple that's not being poisoned. If the grub is not there, that means somebody killed it, and this was by using chemicals. So some people understand this and overcome the instinctive uh, repulsion for an apple that has a grub inside and they're willing to pay for it but uh, most people despite their interest in stability are not interested in doing that of course there are ways around them that so when you harvest your apples you can think of making apple cider apple cider can be done with apples that are not perfect and have a grub inside so you might select your apple, sell the 1% best apples as fresh fruit, and the rest goes to cider, and the worst part of it goes to animal feed. So you always have a use for it because you have so many things that you make cheese, you have whey. The whey goes to the pig um, uh, and to the chickens. You um, process apples to make cider, you get the leftover cake, uh, of squeezed apples that goes to the pigs and cows and sheep and, and so you you always get a full utilization of every product and every leftover product and every part of the process so um, that's the beauty of this system that there's enough variety of species of um, plants and animals that nothing goes to waste and everything can be optimized the backdrop is uh, the difficulties in dealing with all of this from both a natural agricultural point of view and especially from a market and even worse from a bureau bureaucratical point of view. But with experience, I think that um, overall by direct sale to people that understand the value of this, uh, a family could could probably get to a point where this can be their job. But it does take 10 years of experience to get to the point. And uh, here you see, with your descriptions, it's possible to see the importance also of the animals in the system as the cyclers, right? And, um, and so linking it back to what you were saying earlier on about how the animals, they also provide labor for you by, for example, pruning the suckers of the olives, uh, mowing the grass. Um, do you sometimes wish uh, you were using a, a machine, a tractor to do this? What's, what's kind of the challenges or what's the, 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 the benefits compared to the, the challenges of using animals 
in the system compared to what somebody else would probably do, which is use machines. Okay, let me clarify that I use a tractor too. Um, so mm -hmm. I'm working, we are working and studying the system and with the goal of reducing more and more the use of the tractor and, uh, and um, using the, uh, the uh, local resource of the farm, the animals and what you have, uh, in place of the tractor as much as possible. But you always need eventually to go through uh, with a tractor, maybe you can rotate animals. Like for instance, if you graze uh, fields, eventually you get thistles because the sheep and cows don't eat them. And yes, you could then use a donkey to eat the thistle, but then you have a donkey too, and the donkey will damage the fruit. So you can't put the donkey in the orchard. So eventually you'll have to use a tractor anyway. So mm, we're not talking about uh, a radical system where you don't even have a tractor anymore. We're talking about a system that uses a smaller tractor because the needs are reduced to 20% of the otherwise system, but you, you probably still need it. And uh, we're not even to the point where we need it 20%. Maybe we can re we reduce it 50% um, right now, but we still use it. And um, so, um, Yes, I don't know if I have answered enough your point. Yeah, um, I, I wanted to. This is definitely a, a part of the a part of the answer. Um, but maybe another way to 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 phrase this question is, you know, what's the um, how valuable are the animals as a source of labor on the farm, and how much? Because I, I can imagine, for example, you've got animals on the farm. Um, on Mazzy Farm, we didn't we didn't work yet with a lot of animals, so we don't have that intimate experience with them. But they are, for example, providing benefits in terms of the fertility, in terms of the mowing, and etc. But at the same time, they're also involving a lot of labor in terms of managing them, moving them, making sure they're in their fence when they get ill, taking care of them, feeding them. So I wanted to kind of know if it balances out at the end, if it's worth having the animals in there based on the fact that you've got a product, etc. Yes, I think um, it's worth it if um, the animals are already worth their while. Like if your purpose is just to weed the garden and otherwise you have no interests um, clearly it's not worth it it's cheaper to have a tractor that doesn't eat all year you just use it when you use it and then it rests and it doesn't consume fuel and doesn't take management doesn't take fencing doesn't take the vet it doesn't get sick so you 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 need animals that are useful or on their own and um, and uh, economically worthwhile on their own once you do that combining them might provide some saving on both the animal and the plant side. And then again, the, it's useful if you have enough of a scale. Like if you have to every day or every few days move a fencing to move 10 sheep, and this costs you an hour of time, you know, it would cost you an hour of time even if there were 100 sheep. And so again, there's some scale economy in there where um, it might not be convenient if you have only 10 because the system works beautifully from a natural point of view, but it's not sustainable economically or, or from a hand labor point of view. So um, you can decide that you have animals for your own family use and you don't deal with rules and laws and abattoirs and you just 
to your own family use. Maybe your own family use can include few friends that somehow you feed without going through all the legal framework. And uh, if you are to that scale, then you can use this animal on small areas, like intensive areas near the house, like a vegetable garden, and where you don't need a lot of time to move them around. If you want to clean the olive orchard, which is a little further away and it's a little larger scale and it needs more animals, maybe you don't want to do that step because then you get into selling chicken meat and that's a whole other scale and you might not want to go that far. So uh, there are different scales and different uses that you can choose and um, if you do the next step, the next step must be worthwhile by itself. It wouldn't justify to have the chickens just to clean the orchard. Clearly, they're not, that would not pay back. But if you're interested in keeping a thousand chickens and selling them, and that's a possible source of income, and you envision that that's going to work in your farm, then clearly do put your chickens in your orchard because you're saving some money. So um, animals do bring an incredible layer of complication because they don't go on holiday they're they are not well chickens they have cycles you buy the chicks and three months later you sell the chickens and you're done so you're free you can also go on holiday if you have a cow clearly you can't and so this is also another thing to consider uh, if the animals are permanent animals you don't get a day off in which case you might want to share your farm with at least another family so you can alternate and you know go somewhere for Christmas every other year. If if you have meat chickens, this is not a problem. If you have egg chickens, this is a problem. You need to keep them all year. Chickens can be um, kept in an indoor space with uh, enough food and water and without any care for maybe up to a week, 10 days. So you could have chickens and still allow yourself a holiday if you have a milk cow you clearly cannot do that i didn't want to, to interrupt Adolf, but i was thinking it'd be great to leave us a bit of time to have an overview of some other uh, of your systems as well yeah so other systems um i wanted to say that um we send the animals in the forest now in italy you cannot send goats into the forest but the wild goats or wild deer or caprioli that grow naturally and then didn't used to be there until 15 years ago but now there is plenty as well as the wild pigs the wild boar which was a rare thing 50 years ago and now there is so many to the point that they cross roads etc they can all go in the forest and that's legal and the hunters can harvest them so basically you're growing this animal on your land for the for the uh, hunters which pay a fee to the region but not to you so you as a farmer you are maintaining the land so that other people can go hunt on your land and reap the produce and you cannot send your own goods on the land um, but you can send sheep and cows as long as you haven't just cut the forest but of course um, in an adult forest, there is not much that sheep and cows can eat. Um, and um, when you cut the forest, there is re-sprouting, but the forest uh, cannot be grazed for eight years or whatever. So what we found, though, is that 
you can ask for a thinning cut. A thinning cut means that you go in the forest and choose selectively um, the best specimens and thin out the rest because they're not gonna grow well or they're too crowded or, or they're sick or whatever. And as long as you respect certain rules, you can do this thinning. And because it's a thinning, you can do it in any season. So by applying for this kind of cut, um, you can cut the trees during the summer where there is not much forage. And then uh, by cutting, by felling the tree, the animals get access to its leaves and you can actually get a lot of feed that way. So this is one thing that we're doing. We apply for cutting uh, small areas of the forest. We thin the trees in the summer and feed the cows and the sheep with the fallen trees so that they can access uh, their vegetation. And then we cut up the wood for heating. And so again, we, we make scale economy of our hand labor because you cut the trees for wood anyway, you might as well feed the animals with the same operation. You, you, you're getting an extra bonus of feeding animals for something you will be doing anyway, which is make firewood for the house. And so this is another thing that we're doing is using the forest to feed the animals in the summer. And I haven't had a chance to experiment, but I would love to actually plant forage trees, a varieties of them, on open fields that we use for grazing. It would be good if these open fields had lines of forage trees, which you could uh, top and hedge with a machine to knock down the vegetation that needs is needed to feed animals. But this is a more large, larger scale experiment that I'm not sure we can afford to do at our own cost in our own farm. But as a researchers, I'm, I'm in touch with other colleagues that are interested in trying to experiment this kind of system, um, which would be a way to modernize an ancient practice of cutting tree leaves for feeding animals, uh, both fresh and as a um, preserved forage which you can store in winter. Farmers used to cut branches, collect them in bundle, bundles and dry them for winters. But this is this requires too much hand labor and it would not be um, convenient nowadays for economic reasons. But if you mechanize it and, and optimize the system, then it can be a way to pick up an old design and turn it into a modern design by adjusting it to modern needs of costs and, and labor. Um, other, other agroforestry or also permaculture things that we do in our farm would be to um, uh, again use the chickens in the vineyard. Um, we put fencing um, along the line of the vineyards every other row and uh, we're building a chicken mobile where the chicken's barn is on wheels and so it can be moved and they're very, very effective in within the vineyard. Our vineyard is a small area, about uh, uh, a, a tenth of an hectare. And on that scale, a few animals can just do all the weeding for you without much problems. Another interesting thing that I found is that um, the tree Ailantus altissima, which is considered a pest tree by everybody and everybody hates it, um, when it comes out as a sapling, the animals don't eat it. The plant, the leaves appear to be toxic and the animals leave it alone. Uh, but it turns out, I discovered, that if you 
cut the tree when the tree is become big enough that it's out of reach of animals, then and only then, if you cut the tree, they actually love the leaves. It might be that the tree has some toxins that protect the tree when it's small, but when it's big, it doesn't need those toxins. And so evolutionarily, it learned not to make them. And if you cut it then, then it provides forage. But when the tree is young, you don't have to protect it. You know, agroforestry has a big problem about uh, tree guards and how to protect trees from the grazing animals, because if you keep the animals where the trees grow, the animals will damage them. So you have to spend money to protect the tree. Well, this tree protects itself, and it grows bigger, and it grows really fast, faster than any local indigenous species. And then you cut it, and they, they actually eat it, and um, you make firewood for, for the house. It's not good quality wood, but to burn inside a wood-burning stove, it's, it's, a, it's a fine source of fuel. So we found that this tree is actually a, a very great source for agroforestry because it provides forage and it defends itself when it's young. You don't have to spend money to protect it. So you just have to thin it out and, and cut it. When you do thinning cuts and you let the animals in, uh, are there uh, specific uh, varieties of trees that they um, find more nutritious? Or maybe you could go a bit more in detail on the tree fodder and even maybe saying uh, what you would plant if you had the opportunity to, to test out including um, uh, trees in the pasture. Yes. Um, our forest is mainly um, one species of oak. Uh, Roverella is uh, Quercus pubescens. And uh, in America, they say that oaks are toxic for animals that you have to be careful. I do not find that we have a problem. Maybe our oaks are what they call white oaks in America, and so they are not uh, as uh, rich in tannins. But when we cut oaks, the animals eat it in large quantities and don't seem to have problems. In fact, probably it's good for the tannins and the parasites, but um, I don't know enough about this, and unfortunately, I don't think anybody knows enough about it, but this will be very interesting, understanding uh, what medicinal properties the different species have on your livestock, because maybe we could do without so many um, warm medicines for the livestock if we could feed them uh, the right kinds of plants that with the tannins or with whatever act as a... Uh, warm controlling agent. But anyway, oaks um, are fine. We have a, a one species of um, ash, um, Fraxinus ornus, uh, which, like all the ashes, the animal love. Um, when we do have elm, of course, elm was the preferred forage tree for the farmer, but nowadays with the Dutch elm disease, most elms are gone. But when you do have it, the animals love it. Uh, then we have hornbeam, um, Austria garpinifolia, um, which they eat just fine. Um, what else we have? These are the main species. Oh, and many, many maples, uh, minor apple, field maple, mountain maple, they, they all eat it. So when I thin the forest, I try to cut every day perhaps one tree of each species to give them a different diet. Um, and th they seem to happily um, gobble it all up. Uh, probably ashes would be among their favorite. Um, but th they, 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 they eat it all um, whenever there is the availability. So uh, 
uh, almost every tree in the forest is something they eat. Um, I don't cut other trees like sorb trees or something because if I have any, I let them grow big and hope to get some fruit from, from them. So they would eat it otherwise. Oh, and we have a um, wild cherry. It's a bitter cherry, but they eat the leaves as well as the fruit. Again, in America, they have a different species, um, a Prunus serotina, which is toxic. And they recommend not to cut trees uh, for those animals because you poison them. With our species, which is not Prunus serotina, um, um, there's no problem. At least I have found no problem. They, they eat it all up. And it's interesting, it smells like almonds when you cut it. You can smell the amygdalin, but the animals eat it just fine. And um, if I had to plant trees in a field, I would think more of trees that sprout back really easily. There would be mulberries, there would be um, uh, willows, of course, if you have the right soil with water, uh, poplars, um, but also um, black locusts, uh, probably is a fantastic tree for feeding animals as well as producing biomass. And maybe linden trees, um, I, I did say mulberries, uh, among the mulberries there are some vigorous varieties and they sprout back really well. Uh, so. Yeah, linden, mulberries, black locusts, willows, poplars, um, probably a few more. Uh, I found that redbud trees um, are also, you can cut and hedge and top them and they just come back. But I found that the sheep eat the leaves and the goats too, but the cows don't. Um, so again, this is a field where there is a lot of experience to be made. Um, and there's not enough research and trials going on, but it would be very nice to see more experimentation going on to, to figure out more details. And when the, when the animals are eating tree leaves, does that represent um, all of their diet, or is it always something that comes as a supplement and as a source of tannins in addition to pasture? Well, in the literature, um, people perhaps cautiously tend to state that you only want these forages to be a small fraction of the total. But uh, I find that one, um, it depends on the kind of animal and uh, what kind of production level they have. So if you have high performance animals like moss farm nowadays, then these produce, products probably can't provide too much a percentage of the food because the rumen won't be enough to hold enough material to feed these animals. But um, take sheep, they, they have um, lambs in winter, you milk them during the spring, then you dry them up during the summer. For one, because the cheese goes bad with high temperature, and two, because there's not, not enough grass. So in that moment of year, you're just maintaining the weight of the mothers, they're not even getting pregnant because it's too early. So if you have a rustic sheep that's producing neither milk nor nor meat at the moment, then you can use that forage for a greater percentage of the diet, which could easily be 50%, I find. And um, also, um, we have selected animals that eat what we normally feed them nowadays. Uh, if those animals are not good to eat forage, uh, tree forage, 
perhaps they are not just the right animals. If three forage is what we have or what we should have to be more sustainable, then we should select animals that can eat more of it. And certainly there is room for that selection. But uh, to be more specific about our farm, I find that in the summer for sheep, I would estimate that they probably eat, they can go up to 60% of tree forage, and then I always give them hay at night. So depending on how much hay they use and how much they left over, they leave um, uneaten, then I know if I'm starving them or if I'm feeding them appropriately. So I always give them enough hay, perhaps not great quality hay, but enough so that they need to leave some behind. If they finish all the hay, even though it's not great hay, perhaps you, you're giving them too much tree forage and they, they need to eat something else. I find that if animals have a choice, they will tell you what they want. The, it's important that you give them a choice so that if they don't want something, they are not starving, they don't have to eat it. And then they, they self-limit a lot, um, but give them always enough of something else to, to make sure they have a choice and, and they'll tell you how much they can eat. That's fascinating. And going back to what you said earlier on, does it only make sense to use tree as forage, economically speaking, if you also harvest wood um, out of it for, for your house, for example? Or, you know, because you said that it doesn't make sense to have that on your small scale. It would need to be in, in your pasture um, to have some uh, uh, tree forage trees there because you would need to mechanize it. What I would say is that, again, when you consume a product, a product as a final consumer for your own use, you're um, saving the full price and you don't have transportation and, and, and other expenses for selling a shop or, or all of that. So um, I find that producing many things for self-consumption is actually worthwhile because you're saving the full price. When you're trying to sell it, then you have added costs and sometimes lower prices. Then sometimes on a small scale, it's not worth doing it. But I do produce wood for my own house, and I'm saving all the heating for the house, you know, maybe a couple thousand euros in a year. And to save that amount of money, I work a certain amount of hours, but I find it worthwhile. So because for self-consumption, I find it worthwhile to cut my own wood, it makes more sense that I cut it the way I described, because then I also save a few euros to feed the sheep. If I had to go on a bigger scale, um, I, I would, if I had enough land to do it, I would say, and if that was my job, I would say that there are people that make money by cutting wood. If they do it, then having sheep to use the forage would be possible on the bigger scale too. But um, in that case, it could be questionable whether your labor to feed the sheep would be worthwhile. Depends how much you need to spend to keep the sheep near the forests versus uh, wherever you have a barn. So if the forest and the barn are nearby and it's easy to take the sheep there, it's already fenced, maybe it's uh, worthwhile on a larger scale too. If you have to put the animals on a truck and bring them into a forest and fence the forest so that you can feed them only part of their diet, definitely it's not worth it. So. Um, so, there, as usual, there are limitations. Um, if you 
if you can um, organize your farm or if your farm is is already happens to be designed in a way that it's easy to move the animals and the infrastructure is there the fencing is there then i would say that it's definitely worthwhile and it could be on a self-consumption or on a bigger scale uh, otherwise it would have to be on a large scale to justify it but to be honest i don't have the economic numbers to to calculate whether this would be more convenient than buying forage and keep the animal in a stable um, of course the animal that grazes the forests compared to one that stays in a stable it's a different animal it's a different product it def it's a different animal welfare so the trick is to market your product and um, marketing the product makes a difference if you sell your meat at twice the price you can do things that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise and so the marketing part is really important um, can we have added value by doing things in agroforestry or whatever you might call it in a certain way rather than conventionally if you don't have that element um, a lot of things that make sense from a natural sustainable point of view might not be economically sustainable uh, we find that our customers and are all high-end well-educated people that tend to understand the value of something special if we had to sell tomatoes at the average price of conventional produce we probably wouldn't find it convenient um, we we tend to apply prices that are close to um, the supermarket price for organic produce and uh, we do have an organic farm but we don't bother certifying the product because our customers trust us more than they trust the label. And so we don't need to go on the label route to guarantee our products. They, they know us and they trust us. And that's probably more, has more an impact on these kind of consumers. They have been to our place, they have seen the place, they are friends and they trust us. And so they're willing to pay those three to four euros for a kilo of tomatoes and the tomatoes might be orange, yellow, striped, dark, red, uh, and light bulb shaped, round with ribs or smooth. And you know, it's worth their while to pay extra to buy tomatoes. They are colorful, flavorful, completely chemical free. And you know, they trust us. They they know what they're eating. And, and and they're not discussing whether it should be 50 cents cheaper or not that's that's not a big issue for them um when you if you want to hit a different target um, then you need to be more careful at your cost and your scale economy so everything has to be calibrated for your system your customers but you can choose your customers by um, um, organizing your communication so if you um, uh, use images, uh, send recipes, explain what you do, make a splash on the news, on the news, um, have interviews like this or whatever else you have, explain what is important. If you are a, a well-educated communicator that knows how to explain the added value, you will find those customers that will pay a little extra if if the market is not there that limits a lot what you can do with these systems and not because potentially we couldn't get one day to produce 
things in a more sustainable way using these techniques on a lower price. But to get there, we need to spend as many years of research as we, as we have spent so far studying a conventional system. For a century now, we have optimized um, conventional agriculture with um, chemical fertilizers, uh, pest control, and all of that, buying expensive equipments and all of that. And now we'll come down to producing food at a very cheap price. We could probably do something similar with alternative systems, but we don't have the one century of research behind us to make us um, adopt the right techniques. So we're all pioneers of a new way of doing things, and pioneers um, uh, test things at their own cost and on their own shoulders because no one tells them how to do it. They are pioneers by definition. So for the time being, pioneers need added value and added price. And once we will have that experience, we might be able to lower the price and do this for everybody. If you have apples that are not perfect and have a grub inside, you can still make apple cider, which will look conventional enough for everybody to want to drink, even though the apples were not perfect. And so, um, Th th this concept can be applied to other things. Like sometimes we don't have uh, perfect tomatoes, um, we make tomato soup. Um, sometimes um, um, we don't uh, use the milk for making cheese because it's not enough request. We feed the milk um, to the pig or to the chickens and uh, still get something out of it. Um, so there is, there is a, you can make fruit leather, you can dry figs when you don't sell them fresh. So there is ways with imperfect products to make perfect looking um, products. Like uh, instead of selling wine, which is a very competitive field with very little uh, margins because everybody is super specialized in making wine, but hardly anyone makes grape juice. So we don't make wine, we make grape juice. And so, these are a little bit of concepts and tips that the farmer can think of to 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 make it to to make these unusual diversified products reach the market in a way that is acceptable for the consumer. So th these are important uh, ways of thinking about your products. We're convinced with Dimitri that mistakes are the basis of all learning, and that they're actually the most precious things to share. So we were thinking. Are there some um, big mistakes that you remember or that you know you learned especially from uh, in in designing or implementing or managing your agroforestry systems that you would like to share with uh, us and the listeners and that we can all learn from? Yes, uh, the biggest mistake is we were excited about planting apples and we planted too many at once, and we totally completely underestimate that one the soil was very poor and. Uh, it, we needed to take better care of fertilization. And as we didn't want to use <clears throat> chemical fertilization, we should have invested a lot more in uh, fertilizing the soil by buying manure or buying straw or organic matter of some kind or guanito or other organic products. But um, it was a mistake to plant too many trees on, um, 
on a soil that was too poor without taking good care of it. The other mistake was that I was convinced that on a very vigorous rootstock, the apples would become self-sufficient in terms of water within three, four, five years. So I did not invest in a drip irrigation system because I thought we'll water them by hand for a few years and then they'll be fine. But the climate has been getting warmer and drier and this is no longer true. And in fact, I don't think I will ever able to keep my apple trees despite being grafted on MM111, which is one of the most vigorous rootstocks you find on the market. I don't think I'll be able to keep them without some irrigation in the summer. So this year, I finally, after 10 years, build a drip irrigation system. So my advice would be um, start with perhaps many things, but on a very small scale, plant a handful of trees, plant a small vegetable garden, and do your best to do it well, and be patient to learn from the mistakes. Don't make the step longer than your leg, because um, you, you need those years of experience to do things well and right, and see what works for you and for your environment and for your customers. So. Um, Experiment a lot of things, but everything on a small scale so you next year can say, okay, this doesn't seem to work, I won't do it again. This I'll try again, but again on a small scale, see if I have a luckier year. This worked very well. I'll do it a little bigger, but not too much because I can't assume that that's the rule. Perhaps that was a special year and the next year is not going to come out well. So do many things on a small scale and give yourself time to learn from what you've done so that you can grow slowly but but constantly uh, consistently in the direction that seems to work in that would be the biggest mistake we made and and uh, the biggest advice i would give another advice if i may is um make sure um you get um you don't get overworked to the point where you're too busy working to discover how to work less. This is a typical problem with farmers. They get excited, they get their hands full, and then they don't have a minute to, to think or to visit another farm or to read on, in internet or to listen to a podcast such as this. And the consequences of that is that they don't do as well as they could because they don't have the ideas and the knowledge. We visited farmers in Missouri and it was a good farm. They were selling cheese and they were giving the way to a friend for the pigs without doing ricotta. Ricotta is another cheese you make after you make cheese. And before you give the way to the pigs, you can extract another amount of sellable product and they just didn't know it. It was amazing that they could not know this and not make ricotta out of out of the milk. They could bring to the they went to the market to sell the cheese. They could have sold the ricotta as well, no? And they just didn't know it. And so they didn't um explain with doing yogurt. Now yogurt is the easiest thing in the world. One liter of milk is one liter of yogurt. One liter of milk may be 150 grams of cheese, but it's one liter of yogurt. If you sell yogurt you're selling milk with hardly any work added and you're you, you you're selling it at a much higher price than milk so that's a great opportunity they never knew about it or they never wanted to experiment um, so make sure remember that knowledge is fundamental and we don't have the knowledge we just said before we need 
100 years of experimenting in this direction before we'll be able to produce food on a large scale at a lower price sustainably. And, and that knowledge is absolutely needed both to produce and to sell and to create added value. If you get stuck in a vicious circle when you don't have the time, you're gonna work harder and harder for less and less. You need to invest in your own education, visiting other farms, reading books, trying different products. Um, make sure that happens because uh, this is a knowledge intensive approach to life in agriculture and without that knowledge, you can't be successful. Thank you. If if no one else does, at least I'll follow that advice because it's it's great to have that perspective from uh, from like years of experience and it's it's really appreciated. Uh, I'm sure Dimitri has some you know last question. I've been kind of hanging on and to my questions and, and hanging on to you for the last ten minutes. But there was one last question I wanted to to ask, which is I think is important. Is I heard you mention earlier. Um, you know, that after 10 years of experimentation, maybe a couple could live from such a diversified farm. And that's what I wanted to ask is, you know, could you, um, if, if there's a young couple that came in to see you with a similar context and that told you, we want to start uh, agroforestry based farm or, you know, I say agroforestry, but it could be not agroforestry. I mean, just a small uh, scale diversified farm using alternative farming methods. Could you look them in the eyes and say, you can live from it? Or do you think we're still at a stage where you need a side job and it's, it's too risky? I would look in them in the eyes to understand who they are. I have seen people that are excited that I wouldn't bet, um, I wouldn't bet uh, that they make it because they're excited in a naive way and they're perhaps not ready to work hard and, and to be stubborn and to face the failures and stuff. Um, depends on the character of the person. But if I saw an intelligent person with an open mind, with, with enthusiasm, but not a naive enthusiasm, uh, a person that's willing to spend a year going around farms, working, volunteering for them just to learn before even trying. And if I saw a person like this, then I would say, you can make it. And um, it's gonna be hard. It's not going to be like a lot of money and an easy life. It's not going to be idyllic like people think of living in the country. It's idyllic when you come on holiday on our place. Then you sleep until 11, you wake up, and I bring you raspberries. That's fantastic. But I wake up at 6 to do the cows and the pick the berries. And so most, most people are not up for this. But if you put yourself in that situation and decide that you enjoy that kind of life and being the boss of yourself and you accept the challenge, and you are not just excited, but also realistic and smart, then I think you can do it. And then I would suggest start with a vegetable garden with or without trees. So it can be agroforestry or not, but start with a good vegetable garden because in a small area with a lot of labor, you can sell a lot of crops. And once you start from there, that's probably the most intensive and successful uh, thing to do. Start with a vegetable garden with many varieties of vegetables. Start experimenting with what grows and what people want to buy. And get a group of people that follow you. Keep up with the social. I know it's annoying. I know it's in a way silly. Uh, but that's how the world is working right now. And if you keep up with the social, people will will remember about you, will buy your produce, and and will, will, will be your faithful customers. And um, from there, you start planting a few trees and experimenting. 
and um, maybe start with chickens. I will start with a vegetable garden and with chickens. And then later on, when you see it working, when you are determined that that's a life you want to have, you can start adding perhaps sheep or perhaps a cow or perhaps uh, fruit trees and then maybe get into a forestry area and all of that. But you know the concept of permaculture, uh, the things you are most intensive, you keep them near the house and you know the fruit orchard are intermediate distance and the forest stuff are further away. That should also apply in terms of uh, priorities uh, and, and temporal strategies. So start with the intensive things near the house and then, you know, and, and, and most importantly, don't spend money until it's proven that that thing is worthwhile. So do what you can with as little money as you can. To have a small vegetable garden, you don't need a lot of money. You might have to buy some manure or some organic matter to start with, but um, it's not a big investment. You don't even have to till the soil. You don't even have to, toss to own a machine. You just put 20 centimeters of manure on a strip of grass. It will kill the grass and you can plant the tomatoes right in, in, in in the soil between the manure and you don't even need to own a tractor so i would start with that with a whatsapp group and a, and, and a group of customers that buy in like in a csa kind of approach a community supported action where your customers are those every week and and with that scale i i would think that a young determined couple that um, is willing to put the time to gain the experience could could probably get to a point where this can work for them. Adolfo, thank you so much. Well, um, thank you guys. I think you're doing uh, a really important mission here. And I wish you all the success because um, this kind of detailed understanding and experience sharing is exactly what we need. I am tired of reading um, principles on agroecology books that with the excuse that because every farm is different, you can't apply the same detail to every farm. They limit themselves to stating a list of nicely educated principles that as a farmer I never found helpful. So yes, the concept is obvious and we can make it look fancy, but it's a simple concept. Uh, of course, if you save money by having an animal do the work for you, mm -hmm. it's great, yes, but which animal, how, how many, how, what do they eat? Why do they get sick? You know, chickens outdoor, it's a great concept, but they actually get more parasites than if they're indoor. And so we need this kind of practical information to move on. And I think that your um, initiative is one of the few that gets into the very details of this kind of needed information. So I really wish you the best and, and hope that this uh, podcast is, uh, is successful and, and people will discover it as an incredible source of information. You can always visit another farm, but you can definitely listen to a podcast like this. So it's going to be very useful, I'm sure. Thanks for making it this far into the podcast. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. So please contribute by giving us feedback and suggesting questions. It's really important for us that uh, we're able to include everyone. And the more brains we have, the better the content will be. So you can find us through our social media or our websites um, and all the usual places.